You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So as Max was saying, we are going to be doing a series uh, throughout February here. Um, It is, of course, Black History Month. And so I thought, well, let's do a series on Black theologies. We'll call it Black Theology Month here at Central. And this isn't like the only time during the year, to be clear, that we talk about uh, Black theology or liberation theology or inform our liturgy uh, with that. But um, I wanted to spend a considerable amount of time here uh, during February focusing specifically on Black theologians, Black leaders, Black thinkers, specifically from the Christian tradition. And so this month, we'll look at the work of James Baldwin, I think Cornell West, Christina Cleveland, uh, who wrote the book, God is a Black Woman, that we covered in book club here last year. Um, So Cornell West, James Baldwin, Christina Cleveland, today we're looking at James Cone. I think we'll also look at the work of Dr. King, uh, maybe some others. And in fact, um, our dear friend, uh, Jalen Livingston actually is going to be, I haven't told anybody this, he'll be speaking here. Uh, he's in town from New York, um, and he was a, a member of this church for years prior to his um, departure and move to New York, where he's a, a playwright and a director. He's actually getting a lot of notoriety there at Broadway. Anyway, he's in town directing uh, a play just for a few weeks in February, and I asked him, would you be willing to come and speak here on, on Sunday morning, uh, February 19th. And so he said yes. And so for those of you who know Jalen, you know how awesome he is. He'll be speaking here. I don't know exactly who he'll be talking about, but he knows the theme for this, for this, and he's deeply passionate about, about these things. So look forward to that. So today we are looking at the work and the life of Dr. James Cone. And he is the so-called father and founder of what is known as Black Liberation Theology. And here's a picture of the late Dr. Cohn. There he is, he died in in 2018. He taught at Union Seminary in New York City for approximately 50, five zero years, which is an incredible amount of time to be uh, anywhere. His 1969 book, Black Theology and Black Power is still considered the book the book that defined what became known as Black Liberation Theology. His main message in that seminal 1969 book, and until his death in 2018, was that Black power was simply Black people asserting their humanity and liberation from white supremacy. Moreover, he believed that Black power and Black liberation was, and still is today, the gospel in America. In other words, because Jesus came to liberate the oppressed, and because the oppressed in America has historically and largely been people of color, therefore, Black liberation theology is the gospel in the United States of America today. The gospel for Dr. Cohn was not To be clear, Jesus died on the cross for our sins so we can go to heaven and not hell. That is not the gospel. Cohn believed that that focus on the afterlife, that focus on personal salvation, going to heaven, he believed that that was a focus or a gospel of white supremacy. To be clear, Dr. Cohn wasn't denying the existence of the afterlife or that Christianity had something to do with it. He just denied that it was the focus or what the gospel was really about at the brass tacks. And so for Cohn, the difference between a gospel of white supremacy and a gospel of black liberation came down to a difference in focus. A white supremacist gospel was focused on the afterlife. It was focused on heaven beyond, personal salvation, personal piety, one's personal relationship with God. Have you heard that language before? 
That is not language you find anywhere in the scriptures. This idea of a personal relationship with, with God. Um, it wasn't about right belief. The gospel is not about right belief or tradition, etc. Whereas a gospel of black liberation, which was the true gospel for Cone, was focused on social justice, liberation, lifting up the poor and the marginalized. To be clear, Dr. Cone believed that the otherworldly focus of the white church, its preoccupation with the afterlife and personal salvation, was in large part rooted in racism. And white America's need to preserve their power by avoiding an encounter with the true focus of the scriptures, which is on justice, liberation, critiques of hegemony, critiques of power, critiques of wealth and those who hoard it, and God's preference for the poor and the powerless. So that's how Dr. Cohn defines the two different gospels, the gospel of white supremacy on one one hand and the gospel of black liberation on the other. And he basically uses three stories in the Bible to elucidate this gospel of black liberation. The story of Cain and Abel, the Exodus story, and of course the passion narrative, the story of Jesus's crucifixion. And we'll touch on all three here. It can be argued that the Exodus story is the most important story in the Bible, as even Jesus' Jesus's story, as told in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus' story cannot be understood without understanding, first and foremost, the Exodus story, because Jesus himself is an archetype. He is presented in the Gospels as an archetype, for Moses. He's Moses 2.0. And his story from birth to death is really a reenactment, a complete reenactment of the Exodus narrative, the Exodus story. But more to the point, the Exodus story is, is the story at the heart of any liberation theology, be it Black liberation theology, South American liberation theology, Hebrew liberation theology, etc. This is because the Exodus story, most of us I'm sure are familiar with it, is the story about God liberating an enslaved people, an enslaved and oppressed people from an evil empire, namely Egypt in that story, right? And regarding this, Dr. Cohn writes this, quote, Either God is identified with the oppressed to the point that their experience becomes God's own experience, or God is a God of racism. The blackness of God means that God has made the oppressed condition God's own condition. This is the essence of the biblical revelation. By electing Israelite slaves in Egypt as the people of God, and by becoming the oppressed one in Jesus Christ, the human race is made to understand that God is known where human beings experience humiliation and suffering. Liberation is not an afterthought, but the very essence of divine activity in the world, end quote. So that's how Cohn reads the Exodus story. And obviously, it overlaps with his understanding or his reading of Jesus's story. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I think it's also important for us to talk about how he looked at the story and use the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter 4. This is a story I've never spoken on here before. And you've probably heard the story of Cain and Abel before if you were raised in the church. It's an interesting one. Cain and Abel were, of course, the, the sons of Adam and Eve, we're told. And in that story, Cain kills his brother Abel, fratricide. But Abel's blood cries out from the ground, and God hears it. So God comes to Cain, and he asks him, where is your brother Abel? Cain responds, I don't know. <laughs> Am I my brother's keeper? God replies, what have you done? 
Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Cone uses this story as a metaphor. In this story, Cone says, Cain is a metaphor for white people and Abel for black folk. God is asking white Americans, especially Christians, where are your black brothers and sisters? And white folks respond, we don't know. Are we their keeper? God replies, what have you done to them for four centuries? Listen, their blood is crying out to me from the ground all over this land. Cone uses this story to ask if anyone in white America is listening to the blood of black bodies, which is spilled all over this land and has been so for generations. The blood of millions of blacks who died under the lash and died being worked to death on countless plantations in the South for generations. The blood of all those who died on ships during the Middle Passage. The blood of nearly 5,000 blacks who were lynched in the 19th and early 20th century in the South. and the blood of black folks still being spilled today on the streets of America by law enforcement and in the criminal justice system. And what about all the black folks that continue to die early deaths today because of poverty, lack of access to health care, lack of education, lack of all the privileges and resources that we take for granted every day that give us white, middle-class, and affluent folks longer and healthier lives. We don't think about how poverty kills, but poverty kills. We don't think about how generational poverty in the Black community is inherited and passed down generation to generation and is entirely rooted, entirely rooted in centuries, generations of racism, systemic racism. We don't think about how that racist heritage is still killing black folk today, but it is. And the question is, does anyone in white America hear their blood crying out from the ground? This is God's question to us, Cone is saying. We're Cain. We're Cain in that story. But in order to truly understand Cone's theology of black liberation, one, may, one must pay careful attention to how he reads the passion narrative, meaning, of course, the story of Jesus's crucifixion, which was, according to Cone, a first century lynching. The cross for Cone and for much of the black church, he argues, is the ultimate symbol the ultimate example of this God who stands in solidarity with the downtrodden and the oppressed. Cohn argues that in order to truly understand the cross, one must view it through the lens of the lynching tree, because the cross, the crucifixion, according to Cohn, was a first century lynching. In his 2011 book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, Cone argues that white Christians have never made this connection between the cross and the lynching tree, which is evidence of just how much we have misunderstood the gospel and read it from a white and Eurocentric perspective, which is hermeneutics, by the way. If you were here last week, and a bunch of you were, we talked about hermeneutics which is the way that we interpret the Bible. Cone's theology, which is to say black liberation theology, is really a hermeneutic. It is a lens through which we read the text, just as white supremacy is also a hermeneutic or a lens through which we can read the text. Cone is arguing that only a hermeneutic, only a hermeneutic that comes from a downtrodden and oppressed people like the black community can properly interpret the text 
the cross and the gospel, because that's who it was written for. The only way to understand the cross and the gospel is to read it from a hermeneutic or a lens from an oppressed community, because that's who it was written for originally. The first Christians were the poor and the oppressed of first century Palestine and those suffering under the Roman occupation and those suffering under an oppressive Jerusalem religious leadership that was in cahoots with Rome to, to oppress and exploit the peasant class, which was most people. In a sense, you could say the Bible and Christianity itself isn't really for us. Not primarily. It's primarily for the poor and the powerless. It was primarily written and made for the oppressed, the downtrodden, those suffering under the boot of power. It's for the vulnerable and the oppressed primarily, and for us then secondarily. And therefore, for us to read it correctly, we must adopt the hermeneutic of the oppressed, if that's even possible. We must put on that lens, if that's even possible, and allow the text to speak to us in the way it speaks to them. And with regards to the cross, that means seeing it as a lynching tree, as the text is. The book of Acts says they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That's scripture. How many times have you read that and thought to yourself, oh, that sounds like a lynching tree? Why? Well, I never did until I read Dr. Cohn. But Dr. Cohn says that's the way many Black folk in America have heard that. Putting on the lens and reading the text from the hermeneutic of Black liberation theology means seeing the cross as a lynching tree. And the similarities between the cross and a lynching tree are many, and we'll touch on those here. First, lynchings and crucifixions were both very common, more or less, in their day as forms of punishment and intimidation. Countless people were crucified by the Romans. Jesus' crucifixion wasn't unique. It was pretty common. Many people were crucified for the same reasons Jesus was. His crucifixion wasn't unique. Crucifixions were almost always reserved for enemies of the state, those guilty of sedition, for rebellion, guilty of challenging Roman authority, which Jesus did by causing civil unrest. In many ways, he did. Remember the story of him going into the temple and flipping over the money changers' tables, the merchant tables. Why did he do that? Well, they were robbing the poor at the beginning of Passover week. This was just a week, a few days before his arrest, and actually precipitated his arrest. He went into the temple and drove out the merchants and the money changers who were exploiting the poor as they came into Jerusalem for Passover. They had to pay their temple tax. They had to buy doves and lambs in order to perform their annual sacrifices, and they were paying gouge prices for this. Jesus flipped over the tables and said, what? You've turned the house of the Lord into a den of thieves, you capitalists. <laughs> he didn't say capitalists, but that's what he meant. He drove them out. And the religious authorities saw it and said, this guy is starting to hurt our bottom line. We got to do something about him. No more Mr. Nice Guy. No more uh, half measures. It's time for a full measure. It's time to kill him. Yeah. Jesus also drew large crowds wherever he went. That was also illegal and considered civil unrest, punishable by death. You weren't allowed to lead a, a movement back then in Roman-occupied Palestine. You couldn't start a movement, a, a political or religious movement, have crowds of people around you. That was a no-no. You weren't even allowed to have fire departments back then because they were afraid of becoming political satellites. His teachings, of course, challenged the status quo and challenged the Roman-backed religious leaders and their authority 
that of the Pharisees and the high priest. He challenged their authority. They certainly felt he did. They didn't like him. And he also raised eyebrows for teaching that he was inaugurating, as he put it, a new kingdom. He went around preaching that I am inaugurating the kingdom of God. I am bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And that language, that alone was seditious, this idea of I'm starting a new kingdom. You'll remember that Pontius Pilate, during his interrogation of Jesus, Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of the region. What did he ask Jesus? What was the principal question he was obsessed with? Are you a king? You keep talking about this kingdom, and you've got people at the Jerusalem gate a few days ago hailing you as king of the Jews. You know, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. Are you a king? He wanted to, he wanted to hear Jesus say it himself because he wanted to say, ah, okay, well, now I can kill you. That's sedition. You can't be, you can't be king. Caesar's king. And the only kings that, that rule are his vassals and those that get his approval, like Herod. You just can't call yourself king in that part of the world. There was no freedom of speech. All of this activity Jesus was engaged in was illegal and seditious and punishable by death. And this is why Pilate had the sign say that was hung above Jesus's head on the cross, king of the Jews. That was his crime, sedition, civil unrest, crimes against the state. Thus, Jesus's crucifixion was a first century lynching. And in this way, his death was a profound act of solidarity with all those who stand up against the status quo and the, and the oppressive powers that be. His death was a profound demonstration and symbol of God's solidarity with the oppressed, the downtrodden, those with the boot of the state and the powers that be on their neck. That was the meaning of his crucifixion. God's solidarity with those who were labeled as threats to power and the established order. And just like the lynching of a black man in the American South, the crucifying of Christ was done as a public spectacle for all to see so that all those who saw it knew the message. And the message was simple. The same thing is going to happen to you if you get out of line. Lynching, too, was a way of reminding Black folk of their place at the bottom of the social ladder, and it was a way of terrorizing them into submission and eliminating any hint of rebellion. Because, again, the message was, same thing's going to happen to you, buddy, if you step out of line. Crucifixions and lynchings work the same way. This is why the crucifixion, Dr. Cohn argues, should be understood as a first century lynching and a symbol of God's solidarity with the lynched ones of this world. Those who suffer at the hands of the powerful, those who are humiliated and made a public spectacle of in the name of law and order. As scripture says of Jesus, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Why is that such, why is that put that way in such an important passage? Because the people who read it originally were like, he's just like me. Therefore, as followers of Christ, we, we must always be asking ourselves, who are the ones among us who are being humiliated and denied justice today? Because they are Christ in our midst. And I want to finish today by saying that Cohn's Black liberation theology is not just theory. It's not just a hermeneutic. It's not just theological musings for the academy or for progressive churches on Sunday morning. But it is activism. It is pragmatism. It is praxis. Dr. Cohn was quick to point out that Black liberation theology was at the heart of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And he should know because he was there. He was an adult. He was actually a working academic in the 1960s. And his book, Black Theology and Black Power, was published in 69. 
For this reason, he once said, quote, one could correctly say that the spirituals and the church with Jesus's cross at the heart of its faith gave birth, gave birth to the black freedom movement that reached its peak in the civil rights era during the 1950s and 60s. It was Jesus's cross that sent people protesting in the streets, seeking to change the social structures of racial oppression, end quote. I think that's really important for us to understand. Next time we think that theology doesn't matter, let's remember that Black liberation theology was at the heart of the civil rights movement and in many ways today still is. As we turn towards the Lord's Supper today, I want us to meditate on this idea that to partake in the body and blood of the crucified and lynched God is to stand in solidarity with the lynched ones and humiliated ones of this world as he did, to take sides with them. You know, being a centrist and being a moderate is not the way of Christ. Christ took sides, and his side was clearly with the powerless and the oppressed and the downtrodden. If we do not side with them, then we have not sided with Christ, and we have not rightly discerned the body and the blood of the Lord. And we take the Lord's Supper in vain. So let us receive the Lord's Supper today as a sign of our solidarity with the vulnerable and oppressed and our commitment to Jesus's virtues of liberation and justice. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. So uh, every week here, we, at the end of our time together, we have a discussion and it's often as long as my talk, which is awesome because we get to learn from each other quite often. But uh, for those of you who are new, um, this is just a time where anybody can raise any question, disagreement, um, comments are welcome, um, reactions, reflections on anything that I spoke on. But um, yeah, and for those of you who are joining us via Zoom, I've been asked to repeat this uh, weekly. You are welcome to join in as well. And my understanding is you can just unmute and raise your voice that way, or you can raise your hand on Zoom or put something in the chat column and Bob's up there and he'll do his best to see that and make sure that you get noticed and, and heard. But yeah, um, this is a, this is a uh, heavy topic. Um, today, I uh, realize some of this could be kind of triggering and um, it's very emotional, this topic, and it's also considered very divisive as well today in our culture. And um, But anyway, I, I want to just uh, allow space for anybody to process any of this and raise any questions they might have. Maybe there won't be any questions. I don't know. Comments. A uh, lot, lot going on. Yeah, Marsha. And I know you don't want to use the mic, so I'll do my best to hear you and repeat your question or comment. You never heard this. Yeah, how's how's this? You you mean um, black liberation theology, or you, oh, how's it being circulated in the public arena today? Yeah, you know, and I thank you first of all. Thank you for just being vulnerable and honest about that. You know, I think we often assume everybody's, especially in a very progressive church like ours. So many of us, if you've been here for a while, you've heard us talk about um, you know black liberation theology before, or whatnot, um, critical race theory. But a lot of us haven't, and we take for granted. You're not going to hear this in most churches, uh, especially most white churches. Um, thank you for pointing that out and reminding us of that. How is this being circulated in in the church or in society? Do you mean or both? Either, yeah. Um, I would say one of the 
one of the things that really defines progressive Christianity today is not just a kind of universalism, a sort of embrace of other religions and, you know, the welcoming of variety of beliefs. That's certainly part of it. But the other big part of progressive Christianity today is this talks like this one, this embrace of social justice, this articulation of the gospel as um, being focused on liberation and social justice and care for the poor and the lifting up of the marginalized. That's a big part of progressive Christianity today. So the answer to your question is, this is being circulated, but in progressive Christian churches. And um, not even all progressive Christian churches, frankly, do go down this road. Um, I'm thinking of All Saints in Pasadena. They're they're really big on, on these kinds of messages. Um, so it's being circulated in some aspects of the church, but again, those are very progressive churches. Um, in the larger society. You know, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I do think that in the last few years, because of the high profile nature of the police, uh, acts of police violence against Black folk in the last few years, because of social media, because of the use of body cameras, I think a greater sense of awareness than dialogue has been taking place in the United States as a result of that. So these ideas are being circulated in the culture more as a result of that, I think. But yeah, Marsha. Yeah, yeah. She said she's never seen the protests associated with what I just talked about. Um, somebody want to respond to that? Steve? Yeah. I'm going to give you the mic I'm using because this one, I don't know why I even pick it up. <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the things about Central is we can tend to use uh, some more academic or uh, like more specific language than you hear in a lot of other churches. Like last week talking about hermeneutics, that's not a word that you would hear in other churches, but sometimes you'll hear about, well, if you think about this from this perspective, but we might not necessarily use or define it the way that at this church we tend to uh, use more concrete or do a lot more teaching about uh, the ideas behind things we say. So I think uh, some of the ideas that come out of Black liberation theology, we are seeing more about, but the specifics of sort of looking at the cross as uh, as a lynching tree, that we're, that kind of stuff, yeah, it doesn't get talked about very much uh, in the public space. What I think tends to happen are the people who, who are learning about this then go out with their thoughts and ideas and then try to translate that into um, uh, more accessible ideas to the public, right? So you see, I, th I think, you know, people who are marching in Black Lives Matter movements might not be saying the cross is a lynching tree, but they are, well, I think some of them are, um, but they, they're using they're informed the things that they've learned to then sort of make their statements, but it's, it's behind a lot of the things that we're hearing in the public sphere. If that makes sense. That, that's sort of mine. Yeah. I, yeah. And I thank you, Steve. And I think it's important to keep in mind, Marsha and anybody else, this is niche, I mean, and this is niche for a reason, because we are confronting systems of power, right? You're not going to hear white churches really talk about this because, frankly, they find it divisive. They find it, even those that lean this way, have folks in their congregations that have real problems with this stuff because they it's seen as too political, too divisive, um, and they see it, frankly, as kind of threatening unconsciously even perhaps, threatening to their position in society and the concern that, well, what happens? What, what happens if people of color, people who are different than me really get more power? That means people like me have less. It, it, there's, it's, it's complex, but this is niche for a reason, uh, Marsha, and the reasons have absolutely to do with politics and, and power dynamics and whiteness. Those are, those are the real reasons why, I think. Yeah, Leanne, did you want to? 
Yeah. Also that I feel like, um, piggybacking off what people are saying, like, I feel like in the white church, at least there's a real gain for people in power. If the focus is on, do you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and savior? And that being the litmus test of, are you a Christian or not? Because then it's about like, again, like that kind of Jesus accepting into your heart and you not new with the afterlife. And then like, it takes the mess. Like, I feel like it shifts the pers- the weight of the story away from what you were talking about, Aaron, with like him toppling tables and him speaking out against the state and him having civil protest. Like it makes it about like accepting Jesus into your heart. Like it, it's like the folk, it's like, um, kind of like a magician's act. Like, don't look over here, look over here. Exactly. Hi. It's like, I was saying, or they'll be very vague about it. Just be like, oh yeah, the oppressed people. And they won't specify like who, who those people are. They won't say black people. They won't say queer people. They won't say who it is. They'll just be like, oh, the poor people, the oppressed. So they don't want to get specific with it. Like you said, to be divisive, quote unquote. Exactly. Yeah, Marsha, go ahead. Because we live in a system of white supremacy and the narrative has been told essentially from a white Eurocentric male straight, you know, we can keep going down that line perspective. It's power dynamics. You haven't heard this before because of power dynamics, Dorian. Also, I think just the simple fact of of acknowledging it is, puts a lot of pressure on, uh, it it almost makes it seem like, well, by acknowledging it and by seeing it, then we ourselves are, are claiming to be part of the problem, which we're not. And I've, I, I've heard this, in various instances, quite a few of them personal, right? You know, I'm not that kind of person. That's not me. I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm not that, right? And it's like, okay, I know you're not intentionally trying to do that, but if you're, if you become aware and if you acknowledge and if you, if you accept the situation about what's going on and, and yes, sorry, if, you know, uh, you know, it, it's about that awareness, I think. And being aware, it makes a lot of, it brings forward that guilt, that sense of guilt. And I'm part of the problem when, I, when I'm not. I'm, you know, I treat everybody the same. I'm colorblind, I'm, you know, all this stuff. So it's like, I think that's a huge part of it. And that's why a lot of times churches have a hard time wanting to, you know, bring it up, I think. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, Savannah. And I give you the mic so not just everybody can hear you here, but so that the folks listening online can as well. I just want to counteract that and say, like, by saying that we, like, especially as a white person, like, I am implicit in it. Like, whether I choose to be or not, I have benefited from, you know, the white terms, like, all the systematic stuff. Like, I have benefited from that. And that is an uncomfortable thing, especially for white churches and white people to have to admit that, whether or not they have been, like, actively racist just because it's not just not being racist like I forget to be anti-racist and so having like from a uh, political standpoint I guess like being as a church having to because a lot of people at least the way I grew up I grew up Seventh-day Adventists yeah (laughs) um and so a lot of people like trying to escape from the fundamentalism, like want to see church as a place of comfort. And as a white church, having to admit you're guilty of something is not comfortable. And so I feel like that is also a big part of it is like not wanting to, like we've said to this before, but like wanting church to be a comfortable place for people. And if we have to admit like we're benefiting from all this racist stuff, whether you like it or not, that's not a comfortable thing to have to face. Thank you so much for saying that. 
I'm sorry, I'm I'm chiming in from um, <laughs> the heaven. <laughs> no, you're you're okay. Yeah, you're chiming in from the heavens. Yeah, we're all looking yes. up at the ceiling, but like, where's that voice coming from? Karen, hi. Yeah, welcome. that's yeah. me exactly. Yeah. So the uh, and I couldn't agree more because I'm white too, and I grew up uh, Protestant and Catholic. Uh, my father Catholic, my mom Protestant, and um, I had so much conflict in my heart growing up seeing the bigotry and the dichotomies of how people behaved while they were in this hour of church service as if everything's fine and they're fine and yeah this this I'm so comfortable with being myself and maybe um, like my father the Catholic version was more yeah I have sinned and so I have to talk to the priest and then um, he will tell me like how many mother like Holy Marys, I have to pray, and then I'm relieved of the sin that I uh, committed during the week. Um, so it's this different take, but I, I just couldn't bear leaving the church, how these bitter old women, and I grew up in Germany in the 70s and 80s when the Nazi people were still around. They were at times still like the old teachers in my school. And I was really afraid of old people because of that bitterness and that look, and that disapproval, that judgmental look at uh, me, how uh, what what I looked like, and I'm um, on the spectrum. And I didn't know that until like two years ago that how I experienced the world and my personal being in hermen uh, hermeneutic. Um, thinking about thinking of how other people, other people that are not like me, perceive not only me, but perceive the world. So I've always been thinking from little onwards so deeply about everything and what, what Jesus means and what that means, what my parents tell me. And, um, and, and then being neglected and abused by them just like they like uh, said, it's so wonderful to go to church on Sunday. We have to go. And I felt like this doesn't make any sense in any way. So to me, listening to what you have to say about the oppressed and the vulnerable and meek, that's what I read in the Bible all the time. And that's how I understood it, to be there for absolutely everybody who is being oppressed and who is sick and just mistreated, misunderstood, because essentially, even as a white girl in a white society in Germany, um, and coming to America, riding on the pre uh, the privilege of being right, uh, white, I'm sorry, never having to fear a police encounter. I, I'm so aware of that. And, uh, and yet I'm not going to church to feel comfortable. I want to find community. I, find, I want to find exactly what you offer, this, this kind of understanding of being radically honest about the pain um, people uh, yeah, make other people go through. And, and in my case, having grown up with um, a very difficult childhood and like so many white people have been raised by, you know, some kind of monster, if it was a religious monster or not, uh, but there's so much pain. And what I recently said is um, when someone was raised a, a, like a bulldog is being raised by people that make him aggressive, it's not really the fault of the bulldog that got made aggressive. It is the it is the education that made this bulldog so aggressive. So we can't blame the bulldog. And I mean this this to like an analogy to say about white people, because some people, not only white, but you know, as we've seen in the recent event with the scorpion unit, you know. Any skin color, humans, and a scorpion unit uh, against um, tire nickels. Oh, yeah. Okay. So wh what I'm trying to say is that violence and brutality doesn't uh, have boundaries. It is in our species to be like this. And no matter if you're Asian or whatever your cultural background or ethnicity is, um, it, it's, it's more who raised you and with, with what spirit and um, and so what I'm trying to say is like to blame any human being for being aggressive, we should really more blame the education and the misinformation and the 
the that system. is still being passed yeah. on. The system itself, and then actively working to be role models to be different. And I know this is huge and big, but that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. You talk about what made the bulldog so aggressive, sure. even if it's, if he's white, you know. And yeah. I think I, I want to be in that spirit, in my heart, acknowledging the utter pain and horror that is being done and has been done to everyone, um, yeah, by, by anyone. So I, I want to be in a compassionate heart and I want to acknowledge everyone's suffering, even the white people or who are on the street and, you know, homeless, yeah. what, what horrible childhoods they may, uh, may have or highly likely have gone through. Yeah. They're I victims you- too. Yeah, good stuff. And I don't want to. I don't want to take away from the black uh, community because very clearly, this has been, or the also the Jewish people, anybody who's been like uh, clearly, yeah, uh, so mistreated for thousands and thousands of years, and and in my personal view, and I hope people can forgive me and understand where I'm coming from. Is I want to be in the Jesus spirit of being compassionate towards anyone in any skin color yeah. who suffers by the system and that could mean parents who are violent in any skin color all right yeah thank you those are great thoughts thanks karen yeah all right yeah marcia one more time yeah okay yeah Yeah, there's a cycle to abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. And Marsha was just saying it's beyond just um, uh, education, but it's about basically ending cycles of abuse and oppression. Um, which are systemic and um, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I just wanted to just to highlight a couple things that were said um, that I think are really important. And it's one of them is, you know, being in a community like this one, isn't that, it's not necessarily that we're like solving all these problems, but it is that we are sitting with them and we're hearing them and we're learning to, in essence, you know, basically live live in the in the tension and the difficulty and being open to being uncomfortable and seeing where that leads. And that's huge. Um, and I also just wanted to um, um, highlight something also, I think, Leanne, as you were saying, um, you know, th- this this idea that Christianity and the faith is about what you believe rather than how you live. You know, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, it's none of n- nothing in there talks about stuff to believe in. It's about how we are to live in the world and out of this divine, sacred, Christ-like way of living. Three centuries later, the Nicene Creed was created, right? And it was all about belief and nothing having to do with how we are to live as Christians. Something happened there. It became all intellectual and about how we think about God and theology. We lost that original, if I may be so bold, that original Christ way of you know, that, that Christ teaching, that it's really about a way of living in the world specifically with our neighbor in need and how we treat those around us who are vulnerable and downtrodden and powerless and suffering. That's Thank our faith. So and I just wanted to end our time together maybe with that focus, mm-hmm. that that's really at the heart of um, what we're trying to do here and the kind of Christianity, uh, the kind of faith we're promoting. But it is... Um, Got maybe five minutes left. Does anybody else have something they want to? Hey, Aaron. Hey, who's that? Is that Emily? It is. Hey, Emily. Yeah, go ahead. Um, No, I just from a few minutes ago, I just wanted to say like it sort of uh, angers and triggers me that the belief in historical facts is known as progressive, quote unquote. Um, It should not be niche at all because. In a world when we're living in a a society where political views on one side believes that the other side is drinking baby's blood and the belief in QAnon and the belief in stolen elections and things that you cannot prove, but racism has been historically documented in front of the eyeballs of all white Americans who have done this 
and who have passed that ideology down of thinking that others are less than if they don't look like you. Um, It's, you know, walking a mile in someone's shoes. I can never, even growing up in a place where I grew up, I didn't know. But when I did know, when I found out the things that were going on right in front of my eyes that I was unaware of, I immediately opened my heart and everything to go, wow, I I had no idea this was happening. I don't want to be a part of this. I want to be all inclusive because when I was a kid growing up, like someone said, the teachings of Jesus were about be everyone's friend, love everyone, you know, that, that type of thing. And then for some reason, when you grow up, the actions do not equal those teachings anymore in, in the church. And so it's confusing. Um, I mean, this is where organized religion and all that kind of stuff sort of uh, goes against what I think religion or Jesus was really trying to accomplish anyway, is because they then brought the cult control and power to a smaller unit and then started sort of expanding out. And now we've got mega churches and, you know, all this stuff. But I just think at this point, it's really a cop out to say, um, sure, you can say I didn't know, but immediately your next thing should be, what can I do? Not uh, yeah, no, or I don't really believe this because your perspective isn't everyone's perspective. The white experience doesn't equal all experience. Um, even though that's what we're taught in so many words, but, um, yeah, I just wish that that was someone's response instead of my dad's response, which is, uh, the glass is half full. Anyone in this country can just believe that their glass is half full. Therefore, they can change their own life. Yeah. So true. Thanks, yeah. Emily. Terrible. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Um, well, let us conclude our discussion today. We can keep going, right? And we will throughout the month of uh, February. Mm-hmm.